This story starts with slaves in Iowa. There were 17 slaves in the Duke County in 1840, according to the U.S. Census. There we go. According to the U.S. Census, the largest slave owner was George Wallace Jones, who owned three slaves. He was a southerner at heart and a lifelong personal friend of Jefferson Davis, future president of the Confederacy. George Wallace Jones was a Democrat. He became one of Iowa's first U.S. Senators. He built a political machine around his definition of friendship, namely personal and political loyalty. The Democratic Party in Iowa before the Civil War was divided. It, uh, I should say it wasn't completely united, and parties, parties rarely are. Iowans in the 1850s were agitated over the question of whether to expand slavery into the territories, and the Democratic Party was splitting. Senator Jones made some speeches across Iowa. For example, he said if civil war broke out, he and his sons would be bound in the ranks of the Southern Army, and that although we might be few in number, we would be victorious as our cause would be just. When Senator Jones voted for the Lecompton Constitution, which really brought Kansas into the Union as a slave state, he was voted out of office. President Buchanan, fortunately for him, appointed him minister or ambassador to Bogota, present-day Colombia, South America. And uh, Jones's followers shrank to a splinter movement of Iowa Democrats. Ambassador Jones took his oldest son, Charles, with him to South America as his personal secretary. Both, both Charles was a well-educated, uh, Harvard-educated Harvard lawyer and a very well-spoken man. Both Charles and his father blamed abolitionists, the Republican Party, and U.S. Senator Stephen A. Douglas for dividing the country. Charles contracted Chagas fever, a terrible, just a terrible form of malaria, and he went back to the Duke in 1860. Now, on the national scene, the Democratic Party was in great turmoil. It was actually quite divided. The majority of Democrats supported Stephen A. Douglas, advocate of popular sovereignty, where settlers could decide whether people could own slaves in a territory. Southern Democrats were in the minority, and most of them thought that slaves should be allowed in all of the territories. At the Democratic National Convention, as you know, the party split. Lincoln was elected president. That fall, and southern states began to secede. Now, Republicans actually disagreed about what to do about the seceded states. It's important to remember that newspapers were the political mouthpieces of the parties. A handful of Republican editors actually thought that the southern states should be allowed to secede. Eventually, the thinking was they'd come back. For example, New York Tribune editor Horace Greeley wrote, if the cotton states shall become satisfied that they can do better out of the union than in it, we insist on letting them go in peace. We hope never to live in a republic whereof one section is pinned to the residue by bayonets. As things heated up at Fort Sumter, and it appeared that fighting might, might break out, the New York Tribune and other Republican editors changed their minds, and they accepted armed conflict. Just before the firing upon Fort Sumter, Charles wrote his father, Ambassador Jones, I love the Union dearly, but I hate abolitionism, and love the Southern people. Come home, and let's go south and help them fight for their independence. The last news is that old Abe will commence a war on the South. God protect us if he does. I feel a conviction that I will fight for the South. I will send you a pair of French pistols. You must keep them for our revolution if we are to have one precipitated by those damnable abolitionists. Unbeknownst to the Joneses, Secretary of State William H. Seward had been intercepting the ambassador's correspondence with his family. Just a few years earlier, Secretary Seward and Ambassador Jones had been friends and brother senators. 
Apparently, Seward had heard Jones's stump speeches, predicting that Jones and his sons would be bound in the ranks of the Southern Army in case of war. The firing upon Fort Sumter was a game changer. Islands flocked to enlist in the Union Army and Navy. Many Democrats enlisted too. From that point on, many Democrats were war Democrats who supported using the sword to restore the Union. Peace Democrats kept pretty quiet at that point. Something else changed after Fort Sumter. President Lincoln began suspending habeas corpus in the North. This meant that federal authorities could arrest and imprison civilians without any charges. The civilians wouldn't get a trial. Their civil liberties would be violated. Many Democratic editors in Iowa complained about this, stating that only Congress could sustain the habeas corpus. Lincoln disagreed, saying no, he had authority to do it. In fact, he was the commander-in-chief. In summer 1861, a few months after Fort Sumter, there was an Iowa governor's race. The Democratic candidate, Charles Mason, had been the first Chief Justice of Iowa's Supreme Court. Mason said that the Union must be preserved, but he thought that war at that time was unwise and possibly illegal. Now, do you remember President Lincoln's first inaugural address? Lincoln said, in view of the Constitution and the laws, the Union is unbroken. According to this view, the Confederacy was made up of insurgents who lived in states that remained loyal to the Union. Mason disagreed with this legal fiction. Mason suggested that secession may represent the uprising of a whole people against what they deem injustice and oppression. He also suggested that it may be the voice of one-third of the sovereign parties to our present Constitution claiming the rights of securing the happiness of their citizens by changing the form of their government in accordance, as they contend, with the Declaration of Independence. Now, Mason agreed with the Republicans that the Union must be preserved, but he added a little stipulation he said the federal government must first exhaust every possible means of compromise and conciliation. Otherwise, according to Mason, the federal government was engaged in naked, arbitrary, downright coercion. Mason then predicted that a Republican government held together by the sword becomes a military despotism. Now, as you can imagine, Republican newspapers and politicians called Mason a disunionist. He felt great pressure and he dropped out of the race, and a Republican became governor. During this period, the Lincoln administration began military arrests of civilians. Historian Mark E. Neely notes that Secretary Seward, William H. Seward, was given control of military arrests of civilians after Fort Sumter until the War Department assumed control of them in early 1862. Seward actually organized a secret service for this purpose. Now there's a story that's possibly or probably apocryphal concerning Seward's power. It is alleged that he told Lord Lyon, the British minister in Washington, my lord, I can touch a bell on my right hand and order the arrest of a citizen in Ohio. I can touch the bell again and order the arrest of a citizen in New York. Can the Queen of England, in all her dominions, do as much? About this time, the Lincoln administration recalled Ambassador Jones to replace him with a Republican. When Ambassador Jones returned to Washington in December 1861, his boss, Seward, honored him with a diplomatic dinner. So it also introduced Jones to Abraham Lincoln as my old friend. Lincoln invited Jones to visit his home. The next night, Jones came to the White House and saw Lincoln with his leg thrown over the side of a chair. Lincoln said that he had met Jones years earlier when, he, when Lincoln was a legislator in Illinois. 
state representative. Jones, at that time, Lincoln recalled, had asked the Illinois state legislature for permission to run a ferry from Dubuque across the Mississippi River to the Illinois shore. Lincoln said to Jones, you were brought to my home one night by our old friend, Judge Polk of the United States District Court for Illinois, the father of this lying general, John Polk, now of our army. Jones said, yes, Mr. President, I got that John Polk into the West Point Military Academy in 1838. Lincoln said, Judge Polk said to me, Lincoln, I want you to pass George's bill granting him a ferry privilege at Dubuque. I'll be damned if you don't pass his bill tomorrow morning. You shall never come to this legislature again. Well, Lincoln then told some funny stories and suggested that Jones get reacquainted with his wife Mary, an old acquaintance from his Lexington, Kentucky college days. On Jones's last day in Washington, Seward pulled a bottle out from under the desk and said, let's take a farewell drink. The next morning, Ambassador Jones rode a train to New York City. When he arrived, a detective arrested Jones without formal charges at the order of his old friend, William H. Seward. The next, or the, later that day, Seward told the press that Jones was in prison. Seward publicized one of the ambassador's letters to Jefferson Davis, highlighting passages that made him appear disloyal. For example, Ambassador Jones had written, My prayers are regularly offered up for the reunion of the states and for the peace, concord, and happiness of my country. But let what may come to pass. You may rely upon it, as you say, that neither I nor mine will ever be found in the ranks of our, that is, your enemies. May God Almighty avert civil war, but if unhappily it shall come, you may, I think without doubt, count on me and mine and a host of other friends standing shoulder to shoulder in the ranks with you and our other southern friends and relatives whose rights, like my own, have been disregarded by the abolitionists. Now, Ambassador Jones had said much the same thing in stump speeches across Iowa. He later said that he had intended to fight only abolitionists through the political process, but definitely not to break up the Union. But he was never allowed to defend himself in court. His arrest was a gift to the Iowa Republican Party. Think of it. A Democratic former U.S. Senator who was a friend of Jefferson Davis with a Confederate son and another son about to join. The Muscatine Journal called Ambassador Jones a traitor of the deepest dye. The Burlington Hawkeye editor equated traitor Ambassador Jones with men in their arms making war upon the government. When Ambassador Jones was still in prison, one of his Confederate sons was captured. The Chicago Post said he was not only disloyal himself, but he encouraged his sons to be disloyal too. Ambassador Jones spent about two months in prison. After he was released, the New York Times called Jones a minister to Bogota and Fort Lafayette prison. <laughs> the Burlington Hawkeye ran Jones's letter defending himself, but they added an editorial note. The Hawkeye stated, the ex-senator and ex-minister not only proves himself a traitor, but an ass. He is, he is steeped to the very lips in treason and secession, and that his whole family, male and female, are all and singular, blind poison, vile secessionists. For the rest of the war, Republican editors used George Wallace Jones as shorthand for a sneaky, traitorous Confederate sympathizer who had Confederate sons. It might be useful to look at Ambassador Jones's legal situation. The Lincoln administration had violated a number of his civil rights. One, freedom of speech. Two, Freedom from criminal punishment except upon indictment and trial. Three, the right to a speedy trial by an impartial jury. Four, the right to be informed of the nature of an accusation. And five, the right to confront 
contrary witnesses. One of the ambassador's few Democratic friends, Warner Lewis, wrote, all constitutional liberty is lost in this country. If William H. Seward or any other dignitary is allowed to select his victim and incarcerate him in a cell or court without a trial or even an examination, then this great republic as founded by our fathers has failed. Who would have thought five years ago that the American people would have submitted to such outrageous despotism. The following year, 1862, the state of Iowa and the federal government used force to silence Democrats who disagreed with them. Earlier that year, Secretary of War Edwin Stanton took over the military arrest of civilians. In August 1862, Stanton authorized law enforcement officials throughout the country to arrest disloyal civilians and try them before a military commission. Now, a military commission was a court-martial for civilians. What crimes were subject to arrest? Anyone who discouraged enlistment by act, speech, or writing, or who gave aid and comfort to the enemy, or did anything else disloyal. In effect, if a person discouraged enlistment, he or she was disloyal and could be arrested and imprisoned without a civil trial. Now, Stanton's order was stricter than the U.S. Constitution. The Constitution states, treason against the United States shall consist only in levying war against them or in adhering to their enemies, giving them aid and comfort. The next sentence is very interesting. It clarifies things. It states that treason must be an overt act. This was to prevent judges or politicians from saying that words or plans might be treasonous. Well, after Secretary Stanton gave his orders, the federal marshal for Iowa, Hubert M. Hoxie, acted. Hoxie had been the chairman of the Republican State Committee. Marshal Hoxie swooped into Madison County, the county where I actually live today. He led armed soldiers and arrested seven Democrats, some at bayonet point. Now, this occurred during the election season in Iowa. Marshal Hoxie also arrested two outspoken Democratic editors, Dennis A. Mahaney and David Chavard. Both editors had sometimes criticized President Lincoln and the war effort. Mahaney had been the acting chairman of the State Democratic Committee. So you had the former chairman of the State Republican Committee arresting the former chairman of the State Democratic Committee. Hoxie threw Mahaney and Chihuahua into Old Capitol Prison in Washington. Neither editor was formally charged. Democrats back in Iowa they went and they nominated Mahaney to run for Congress from his prison cell. Not surprisingly, he lost that race. Historian Hubert H. Woman estimated that 36 Iowans were arrested in 1862, August of that year. This was the high watermark for arrests of Iowa citizens, civilians during the war. Meanwhile, in Des Moines, the governor was worried about Iowa's southern neighbor. And he had reason to be worried. Missouri was descending into horror. Armed guerrillas were on the loose. Even worse, towns and sometimes even neighbors were pitted against each other, causing bloodshed, murder, destruction. It was prudent to have an Iowa border guard, a militia, to prevent Confederates from slipping north across the border in Iowa. Woman explains, though, that the, the governor had another worry. He feared that secret societies of Southern sympathizers had gained a foothold in Iowa. Foremost among these was presumed to be the Knights of the Golden Circle. Worried Iowans believed that the Knights were well organized, disciplined, and prepared to aid the rebels. Now, this was not a legitimate fear, but it is certainly understandable. Passions were running high, and rumors filled the state. Republican editor Jesse Clement of the Dubuque Times, for example, said that Dubuque, 
harbored a Knights of the Golden Circle Lodge. He gave no evidence. Nonetheless, national Republican newspapers spread Clemens' rumor, and so did many other Iowa newspapers. Soon, the Dubuque Times linked George Wallace Jones to the Knights of the Golden Circle Lodges. The article was entitled, Secret Movements of Northern Traders. It stated, the emissaries of Jeff Davis are busy at their night work in this state. Their leader is Brigadier George W. Jones. Since he was released from Fort Lafayette, he has been as busy as the satanic spirit of treason can make him to be. And wherever he has been, secret lodges and democratic papers have sprung up with the rallying cry of down with the abolitionists. Wherever he cannot be, he has his tools who take the lead of the democratic element in their community, organize lodges, work hard at nights, and damn the abolitionists during the daytime. The next year, 1863, Republicans raised name-calling to the next level. They began calling Democrats Copperheads. Republicans used Copperhead to smear any Democrat who supposedly sympathized with the South and was too sympathetic about with too sympathetic, not sympathetic, wrong word, too sensitive about violations of civil liberties. Copperhead came to mean someone who didn't fully support Lincoln's war policy. Historian Frank L. Clement called this the most vicious, most extensive, and most successful smear campaign in American history. Historian Leland Sage writes that many Democrats supported the war as loyally as the Republicans and earned the title War Democrats. In fact, many of them hated the Peace Democrats as fiercely as did the Republicans. But when, when election time came around, something amazing happened. Republicans forgot this and smeared all Democrats as Confederate sympathizers. In July 1863, Union troops won a great victory at Vicksburg. Burlington residents formed an exuberant nighttime procession with bells ringing, firecrackers exploding, and cannons firing. Afterwards, the Muscatine Journal said that rebel sympathizers should be compelled to leave, take the oath of allegiance, or be hanged. Six months later, in the third year of the war, Republican Governor William Stone stated, there is no longer any middle ground where loyal men can stand. Those who hesitate now to yield an unreserved support to the federal government unmistakably array themselves on the side of its enemies. If treason is a crime, to sympathize with traitors is also clearly criminal. In other words, Governor Stone suggested that loyal citizens had to support everything the federal government did. Democrats never figured out how to disagree with Republican policies without being seen by the public as disloyal. Midway through 1864, Ambassador Jones's son Charles was captured. The Burlington Hawkeye wrote, Charles S.D. Jones, son of ex-Senator G.W. Jones of Dubuque, was captured by Butler at Drury's Bluff. That is the sort of patriot the leaders of the Iowa Copperheads make of their sons. They have been honored beyond their deserts by the democracy of Iowa. The return they make is to teach their sons to become traitors, to join the rebels in their efforts to destroy the Union and to murder the sons of Iowa who are defending their country. There is another aspect to this propaganda campaign in Iowa. Sometimes civilians or even soldiers reacted violently to Democratic newspapers. Consider what happened in Keokuk. It's in far southeast Iowa. There were seven hospitals for soldiers in that city. In February 1863, editor Thomas W. Claggett of the Daily Constitution, a Democratic newspaper, wrote an editorial, Politics in the Army. According to historian Wubbin, Claggett, Claggett reacted angrily 
to reports that officers from Indiana, not even Iowa, officers from Indiana who were, who were Republicans, subjected their regiments to political pressure. Claggett wrote, partisan officers in the army are pliant tools of partisan bigots at home. Later that day, four soldiers carrying sledgehammers led a mob of their comrades in smashing the presses of Claggett's newspaper and tossing much of the equipment into the Mississippi River. It happened too fast for local and federal officials to intervene. The mob of convalescent soldiers destroyed $10,000 worth of equipment. It's not much today, relatively speaking, but back then it was a huge sum of money. And it took seven months to restart the press, the paper. Woman explains that Democrats across the state were incensed, but the soldiers said they had done their duty to get rid of the Daily Constitution's treasonable influence. Governor Kirkwood weighed in on this. He said he regretted the mob action, but he asked this question. Is it strange that men enduring what soldiers are enduring should give such expression of their feelings towards the men in the North they believe are aiding the enemy? All told, mob made, mobs made up mostly of civilians destroyed four Democratic presses in the state and wrecked a couple of newspaper offices in 1863 and 1864. Well, the war finally ended in 1865. By this time, the Iowa Democratic Party was badly, badly beaten. You might go as so far as to say it lay curled in a fetal position, sucking its thumb. It is clear that Republicans effectively waged a propaganda campaign in Iowa. We can see their success in language, the popular imagination, and political victories. Language. The 2016 edition of the American Heritage Dictionary still lists as the second definition of, of copperhead a northerner who sympathized with the South. Popular imagination. Many people still believe that the Knights of the Golden Circle was a large network of nefarious groups spread across Iowa. However, I've seen no evidence that the Knights of the Golden Circle was anything more than small, homegrown groups of, of angry and perhaps scared men. But the belief remains. Political victories. Republicans had a virtual block on Iowa state government offices for decades, decades after the war. Anytime that a, a, an election was in question, Republicans waved the bloody shirt and reminded voters that they had been on the right side during the war and the Democrats had been on the wrong side. Historian Webin notes, it was well into the 20th century before many old stock Iowans could acknowledge that a really respectable person might be a Democrat. <laughs> there is no doubt. Republicans were masters in propaganda. Would you like to share any observations or questions? What would you consider the leading uh, Iowa Democratic newspaper at the time? The Dubuque Herald. And uh, was it a copperhead Democrat or a. Uh... <laughs> it was smeared as a, definitely a copperhead paper. It definitely smeared that way, yes. Yes. Would you um, consider it both? You know, the editor who was uh, Dennis A. Mahaney, he, he had his idiosyncrasies. And he had very particular arguments. Sometimes he would he would defend uh, an action of, of the federal government or the Lincoln administration and, and, and state his, his view on it. The next day or the next week, he might come back and say, but this thing is wrong. This one, you're doing it this way, it's wrong. It's not, it's not constitutional. Um, his grandson or great-grandson said, according to the family, that in the family stories about him, that he was a very contentious man and 
according to the family, he could pick an argument with just about any family. Did that play into it? Me. Good question. Did that, did that, did that answer your question or address it? Uh, it sounds a lot like Wilbur's story in the Chicago Giants. Uh huh. Who uh, could launch an argument with himself and lose it. Wow. Wow. So, and then we'll, we'll take your question next. Yes. What were the life stories of father and son afterward? Okay. George Wallace Jones, his, his political career was over. He was thoroughly trashed. His reputation was just trashed amongst the Republicans, the vast majority of Iowans. He was reduced to uh, helping to run, run some farms in Chickasaw County. Uh, and also, he regained control of a mine that was in the new county that was helped to help the family finances. Their son, Charles, the oldest son, he had had Chandra's fever, this really debilitating form of malaria that over time, untreated, it caused personality change. Depression and just, just horrible things to the, the personality. He ended up in the uh, Iowa Hospital for the Insane, and he escaped one time. He was incarcerated a few times. He practiced law when he could. Eventually, he couldn't even manage practicing law. So um, years after the war, he, 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 dug a web, he dug a mine with his own hands outside of his parents' home in Duke County. Well, late in life, he wrote a letter to Jefferson Davis, who, by the way, during the war, he, he actually he had written Jefferson Davis a few times asking for uh, positions in, in, in the Confederate Army, and, and Davis helped him get these appointments. Well, years after the war, he wrote this final poignant letter to Jefferson Davis, and part of it was he remembered as a shining moment the first time he entered Jefferson Davis's office in this room full, waiting room full of, of officers with these resplendent uniforms. In the other part of the letter, in the midst of this, I think in the midst of this debilitating disease and the personality change, he actually had these delusions of running for president. And he wanted Jefferson Davis, years after the war, to, uh, to endorse him. Now, <laughs> delusional, right? But um, a couple of years later, he died at the insane asylum in Independence, Iowa. His parents, as you can predict, as you can imagine, they just grieved for their sensitive, gifted son who was undergoing these awful changes. That's a great yeah, question. Thank you. Sir? Yes, you say you're from Madison County. Are there any, are there actually covered bridges? <laughs> <laughs> yes, sir. Uh, I, I recall hearing the number seven. <laughs> seven covered bridges. Yeah, that, yeah they, there are. <laughs> sir? Uh, so I have three questions actually. Okay, I answer them all at once, so it's no problem. But uh, one is, what is the source information that you have that led to all this information? Because it's kind of I'm always amazed about how detailed the information is that you all would speak about. Second is, why did you get interested in it? Uh, and uh, you know, I see you're rather passionate about it, so I can imagine. You know, this really means something. The second one, if I want to find out more information about this, where do we go? Okay. Historian Danielle Clement wrote a great book on Copperheads of the Midwest, or in the Midwest. It was really solidly argued, very persuasive. It, it is. It, it still, in my view, outshines anything that's been written in terms of its reasoning and argumentation. Anything else that's been written about the Copperheads. In a way, I told him in Milwaukee last night, I'm trying to actually dig deeper into the Iowa, the Iowa angle of his story, to dig deeper about, I had this hypothesis that George Wallace Jones was being used as a whipping boy by the Republicans, but I didn't have the proof. So I, I, I just dug and, and dug and dug into the, the archives and, and, and transcripts of these papers and I kept, um, I kept finding his name popping up. And just with these wild connections. <laughs> just, what, why not George Wallace Jones? And I think it was just a really dandy, handy little tool for the Republicans. Kind of a mnemonic device. 
that instead of taking a lot of space and reminding people of all these, these ills and sins of the, the copperheads, just say George Wallace Jones. You save a lot of time. Um, I think so. I think so. It reminds me of a, a friend of mine suggested that um, in most stories, if you have a hero, in order for that hero to look really, really good, there has to be a villain. And the any islands who left the state to serve the Confederacy uh, became that villain. And since George Wallace Jones was father of two of them, boy, he was just, I think he made a tailor-made villain. But you have a uh, blog on this? Yes, sir. Thank you for asking. I have a blog. It's called Confederates from Iowa, not to defend, but to understand. I wanted to reassure Iowans and others that I'm not promoting anything crazy like, like slavery. I'm an Iowan now. I'm Illinois native, but I've lived there for 11, no, almost 16 years now. And, um, but my thought is, you know, as, as Iowans or Midwesterners, Illinoisans, we know that people do things for reasons. And um, and I figured, you know, we could try to understand why did these people do do something crazy like leave a nice state like Iowa and serve the Confederacy. Thanks, friends. Go ahead and tell that story. What's that? Go ahead and tell that story. Okay, we'll do. It. Yes. Um, in your uh, research, do you recall anything um, related to what you were telling us about in, in Guthrie County? Because my, well, because my family was there long really? before the Civil War. Oh, so, wow. Yeah. No, I haven't come across Guthrie County. That's a great question. Um, you know, 99 counties in Iowa, yeah. I know it's a small state compared to Illinois, but it seems pretty big if you actually live there, like for yeah, for a while, it's 99 counties. So no, I haven't. Um, it's not it's the not same. that far from Madison. No, that is true. That is so true. Uh, I've been really focused on my on my digging. I'd like to, to switch gears with your permission and just tell you a little bit about uh, my research in the Confederates from Iowa, and then tell one of their stories. Iowa, as you know, was a very strong pro-Union state. They sent about 76,500 men to serve the Union during the war. I have documented 76 Iowa residents who left our state and served the Confederacy. So basically, every one island who served the Confederacy, 1,000 served the Union. They were just a drop in the bucket, but they existed. And to me, they represent a scarlet ribbon of, you might say, descent through Iowa history. Um, just, just for your information, I have three parameters for establishing an Iowa residency. Uh, first, no earlier than 1850, so I don't include any of the U.S. Army soldiers who were in the territory of Iowa, including Jefferson Davis and Robert E. Lee. Nobody would accept that they are Iowans. Nobody. So no earlier than 1850. Minimum of two years of residency and no younger than 13 years old during residency or at least that I am counting. Uh, so that, those are my parameters. And now with, uh, without any further ado, a story. <clears throat> if John Haps had entered the Confederate service hoping for a job and adventure, he got his wish. John Haps started life in Holland as Johannes Haps. At the age of nine, in 1847, his family sailed with other Catholic settlers, Catholic Dutchmen from the United States, arriving at New Orleans. Most of the group sailed up the Mississippi River and settled at either Ottumwa or Keokuk. The new immigrants to Ottumwa attended Mass at the Eddyville Catholic Church. Johannes became John Hamps, and he lived in Keokuk with his parents. Years later, during the Civil War, I don't know why he did this, but he wrote on his Confederate disability papers that he had been born in Eddyville. Hacks worked in Keokuk as a penman, probably someone who wrote letters and filled out forms in English for, for uh, Dutch immigrants. 
Now, the financial panic of 1857 struck much of Iowa very hard, and it lingered. Over the next few years, times got even harder in here. Lack of employment probably caused John Hamps to look for an out-of-state job. Much of the South, in contrast, had rebounded rather quickly, so John Hamps moved to Holly Springs, Mississippi, and ran a newspaper there. Now, those skills were to come in handy later during the Civil War. In mid-October 1860, Jefferson Davis stopped in Holly Springs and moved to Washington, D.C. to take a seat, to take a seat in the U.S. Senate. A group of citizens met him at the Trinity Hall to hear him speak about the possible election of Abraham Lincoln as president. Jefferson Davis said, if you procure a uniform befitting your, your appearance, I will present you with a stand of arms that cost me as much money as the uniforms will cost you. That marked the beginning of the Jefferson Davis Rifles. 102 men visited Taylor and ordered cadet gray uniforms from Boston for $45 a piece. They informed Senator Davis of this action, and they soon received 102 breech-loading rifles. Caps later recalled, from that time on, we drilled constantly. Mississippi seceded in January 1861. Hess sold the newspaper a month later and formally enlisted in the Jefferson Davis Rifles, which became Company D, 9th Mississippi Infantry. Half his regiment went to Pensacola and helped secure Forts Camancus and McCree, both abandoned by federal troops. Hess later recalled that when his one-year enlistment expired in February 1862, he and 34 others got shot, shotguns, horses, and all necessary things, and they offered their services to General Braxton Bragg at Pensacola. Caps claims that they were rejected, so they rode to Chattanooga and joined the 2nd Kentucky Cavalry. Colonel Basil W. Duke commanded the 2nd Kentucky Cavalry. Duke called his troops reckless, daredevil youngsters, always eager for adventure and excitement. Four or five of the cavalrymen were typesetters, and they made use of their talents. On one excursion into Lexington, Kentucky, behind Union lines, Hamps and company broke into the Lexington Observer and Reporter. They changed the newspaper's name to sign to read Morgan's Headquarters, Adjutant General's Office. <laughs> Hamps printed a 12-page pamphlet titled Tactics for Mounted Riflemen, with his own name on the cover. After they left Lexington, the editor of the paper complained that Happs had left the print shop a mess, ankle deep with trash and pieces of type. The editor said, we are not anxious to receive another visit from said Happs. Happs and crew also printed The Vedette, a newspaper for Morgan's troops, in July 1862 in Hartsville, Tennessee. Hamps recalled the last copy, printed in Hopkinsville, Kentucky. He says, says, I had taken my detail to Hopkinsville while the command was feasting at a picnic some 15 miles back. After the printing office, had seven galleys of type ready to make up for the paper when the advance guard came upon a trot. The bugle sounded for us to fall in, hastily placing the seven galleys on the hand press and taking a dozen or more troops. The rear guard admonished us it was time to fall in. We caught up with the rear guard later with the Yankees in sight in our rear. The copies of the proofs were distributed and read while the command was on the run to get away from the Yankee soldiers who were pursuing, but we got away all right. On another outing, Hans's unit sneaked through Union picket lines by pretending to be Yankees. They probably went undetected because most wore Union Army uniforms, since their own uniforms had worn out, and because they brought along a captured Union soldier. John Happs kept the Union soldier quiet by tightly gripping the prisoner's throat. <laughs> the biggest adventure was General John Hunt Morgan's great raid in Kentucky, Indiana, and Ohio in summer 1863. Even 57 years after this event, an elderly John Hess called it a pleasure. Morgan's men covered some 700 miles behind Union lines. 
They were often dodging Colonel Wolford's 1st Kentucky Cavalry, USA, and various Indiana and Ohio militias and home guards. John Happs and several soldiers were in his saddle on some days, 21 hours a day. Colonel Duke later reminisced, the men in our ranks were worn down and demoralized with the tremendous fatigue. Near the end of the raid, Happs was so exhausted that he fell asleep on the banks of the Ohio River near Buffington Island. Fighting broke out a few hundred yards away. Colonel Duke and many of the troops were captured and Happs slept through it all. <laughs> when Happs awoke, rain still in hand, he scrambled out of the back of his horse and he looked for other Confederates. He found some riding away from Union troops, so he formed a rear guard. They dodged a Union gunboat on the river. The commanding Union general sent a flag of truce to Morgan with orders to surrender. Morgan asked for two hours, just two hours, to consult his men, which was granted. Happs and the others voted unanimously to race to the Ohio River. They laid a across the road to keep the dust from rising and tipping off the Yankees. Each man gathered an armful of hay for his horse to walk on. Happs led the rear guard. The race was on. A day or so later, Happs was shot by accident by another Confederate. The bullet went through his right hip and out his gluteus maximus. A good Samaritan took Happs into his home and nursed him for four months. When Happs could be moved, they turned him over to the Union authorities. Happs howled off and he escaped for a short time, but they recaptured him and sent him to Camp Chase and Fort Delaware. <coughs> Happs was exchanged in September 1864, and he rejoined Duke's 2nd Kentucky Cavalry in Abingdon, Virginia, Southwest Virginia. Still walking stiffly with an inflamed hip and discharge from his wounds, Happs endured a bitterly cold, snowy winter. He and the other troopers lacked warm clothing, food, and supplies. On January 22, 1865, three Confederate surgeons pronounced John Happs, private, unfit for duty at present, and told him, come back in six months to be re-examined. Re mm -hmm. But Happs remained on special duty in Southwest Virginia. In early April 1865, as Jefferson Davis led Richmond and Lee tried to break out of Petersburg, Duke's men tried to unite with Lee. But when they heard about Appomattox, they went the other direction and they caught up with Jefferson Davis and his cabinet in North Carolina. They provided an additional escort for the president as he tried to reach a viable Confederate force. Happs was part of this escort of some 2,000 men, mostly Kentucky cavalrymen. The story is told that while in South Carolina, an elderly lady chewed out the soldiers. <clears throat> she said, You are a gang of thieving, rascally Kentuckians, afraid to go home, while our boys are surrendering decently. One of them answered, Madam, you are speaking out of your turn. South Carolina had a good deal to do in getting up this war, but we Kentuckians have contracted to close it out. <laughs> A few days later, the cavalrymen began deserting, and the generals dismissed most of the remaining troopers on May 7th or 8th near the Savannah River in Georgia. Hess never surrendered. He later recalled, My fellow troopers took one of the quartermaster's wagons and loaded their guns on it, and we marched to Holly Springs without meeting a Yankee soldier or surrendering a gun or a horse. I arrived in Holly Springs with a fine eight-shooting Colts, Colts rifle and three six-shooters. After the war, Happs moved to East St. Louis, Illinois, and founded a newspaper. He married and had children. He named one of his sons after his beloved former commander, John Hunt Morgan. At age 58, he broke a leg when a tornado hit East St. Louis. At age 64, Hanks encountered a Texas steer. The local press described the scene. Maddened by its long ride in a crowded stock car from the southwest plains, the steer, armed with horns six feet across, 
broke from an unloading chute at the National Stockyards. John Hatch was leaning against the fence in front of his home at 806 First Street when the steer, head down, charged up First Street at full speed toward the fence. With a single toss of its broad horns, it hurled Hatch over the fence and into the yard. Bellowing with rage, the steer stood in front of the high fence and pawed the ground several minutes while Hatch took refuge in the house. He moved back to Mississippi in 1908 after his wife and two of their children had died. He entered the Confederate soldiers' home at Beauvoir, Jefferson Davis's old residence. Still industrious, Hatch planted a beautiful flower garden for residents and visitors to enjoy. Hatch threw a Confederate flag over the gates to his garden. He assured his children, the father and grandfather of us all, referring to himself, is in the far south, having the best time of his life since the death of your mother. During World War I, Hatz grew vegetables in his garden to help support the war effort against Germany. He realized that since southern and northern boys were fighting side by side against the common enemy, this was truly a united country. He took down the Confederate flag and put up the stars and stripes he also wrote this poem. No man can serve two masters. No man can follow two flags. Furl the one you love so well. Cherish its memory to the end of time. It was born and baptized in blood. Now, let it rest in peace. Hoist the other toward the high heavens. Let it float over land and sea. Proud emblem of liberty. Thank you. Do we have time for any observations?